Hey everyone, welcome back to Southern Fried Storytime. I am so excited to have you here today and we're going to talk about The Little Mermaid Part 3. Now where we left off Part 2, we have two very, very different mermaids with two very, very, very different motivations. Disney's Ariel is much more kind of your hopeless teenager who instantly fell in love with Prince Eric the minute she saw him and she is just captured by him. And I mean, as far as Disney princes go, He's really the only one besides Philip that we see at this point, you know, at the point of making this movie, he's really the only one besides Philip that we see do anything. So maybe coming from the Disney universe, that's pretty exciting. Um, Prince Florian and Prince Charming, we pretty much see, you know, there's they yawn at one point, you know, or sing a song. Florian has one song and he has just one song as he tells us in his one song. So, Eric is more like Philip in that he actually has some lines and says some things. And I don't know that he's, Philip is a little bit feisty, which is, and he fights off a dragon for the girl he loves. So naturally as a hopeless romantic, I'm more inclined to Philip, but I like Eric. Eric's a nice guy and everything. Um, Disney story origins did a breakdown of like the top 10 most attractive Disney princes. And then they did another one with, Disney ladies. And for some reason, Eric was number one. I probably would have gone with somebody else for number one, but he'd probably be on my list. He's a decent looking guy and he seems decently nice. I'm always going to like Prince Philip though. He's probably one of my favorites. I don't know. I like that he's, he's nice, but he's still a little bit mischievous and a little bit sassy, but he's not like mischievous is his only personality trait. Like Naveen, who's kind of a lazy guy who marries Tiana because she'll do everything for him. You know, I just, he was on the list and I didn't find Naveen that attractive just because his, his he's cute, but his personality makes me want to punch him in the nose. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, I don't know. I think David from Lilo and Stitch probably should have been a little higher. Anyway, I've really gotten off the rails here. The point is Eric's a pretty good example of a pretty good Disney prince. One of the best ones up until the point of making this movie but Ariel has that kind of teenage girl slash Disney thing where she is all the way in love the instant she sees him. And to me, that's a, that's a bit much. He, he's pretty cool, but holy cow. I mean, calm down, sis. Calm down. Um, anyway, maybe that's because lots of times to me, the more attractive somebody is physically, the less attractive their personality is. So if I saw somebody as cute as Eric, I'd be like, but wait, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Ariel doesn't think that way, but then again, she hasn't met that many humans to compare him to. So maybe that's part of the deal. I don't know. Either way, she's decided that she is super duper in love with him. And now she is headed towards the sea witch to find a way to be with him forever. And in the process, spit in her poor papa's eye. Anderson's mermaid likes the prince and thinks he's a nice guy and all, but she's especially pining for the human world as a whole and for the things she'll never see, especially that fancy, new, shiny, immortal soul that she's got her eye on. So I think in a way, Anderson's mermaid is a little more realistic than Ariel at the time. She just super duper thinks he's so cute and wants to go to the human world, whereas Anderson's mermaid is more like, yeah, I'd like to try some Italian food, go hiking in the woods, maybe, you know, go to heaven someday. She's got multiple reasons why she wants to 
wants to be part of our world, if you will. And I think for most women, even at 15, to make this big of a change, to literally move from one world to the other, it's going to take more than one thing to motivate you. Like it's, it's going to be a big deal. And so I think Anderson's mermaid is a little more realistic in that way. And that she's like, you know, the soul is great. The guy is great. The world is great. I don't think any one of those things, at least my impression of Anderson's mermaid, I don't think any one of those things would be enough to get her to leave her luxurious princess life behind. But all three of them together make a pretty good appeal. So she is also getting to the point where she's ready to see what she can do to become a part of our world. She doesn't do it with a song, though. Oh, well. They do say she's a good singer. In Anderson's tale, a great ball is being held, and the Little Mermaid takes this time and this distraction to sneak away to the lair of the sea witch. In Disney's story, it's not too terrible for Ariel to swim her way to Ursula's lair, but for Anderson's mermaid, it's a dangerous trip to parts of the ocean she had never visited. Part of this is because we know that Ursula has been involved with palace life before. Everybody not only knows her by name, but they know her the minute they see her, which means her appearance must be pretty familiar to people around the castle. People must still be pretty aware of what she looks like. Whereas the sea witch in Anderson's tale is just kind of like how towns sometimes used to have like a town witch. It's somebody that we all whisper about but nobody knows for sure what she's like, what she looks like. Is she even real? You know, so she's kind of more of an, on the outskirts of society in the book. People aren't as aware of her as they are of Ursula. She's not as involved with their lives. So it's a little bit different. And to get there, she has to travel between giant whirlpools over hot, thick, stinking, sickly black mire and, the mire kind of marks the beginning of the witch's territory. And then she lives in this strange little house surrounded by a forest of polypy. In Disney's version, there are also the polyps, which are also known as Ursula's poor, unfortunate souls. They lash out to Ariel with terrifying speed in a way that seems to be threatening and scary in the movie, especially the first time you've seen it and you don't know what she's heading into. In reality, in the movie, these polyps are just grabbing a hold of her to try and stop her from going to Ariel. They've been there. They've done what she's doing, and they know that she's going to be a polypy if she goes in that, in that sea dragon. But Ariel pulls herself free and continues. In the book, the polyps are not trying to save you from yourself and your bad decisions. If the mermaid had been grabbed by a polyp like Ariel in the story, it would have all been over. Whatever they grab in the books can fight all at once and it will never escape. The beds were littered with the bodies of fish, humans, and even a few people that had been captured by the polypy. Nothing but gleaming white bones. She pulls her arms and her long hair close to her body and moves her way through, thinking only of her immortal soul. So unlike Ariel, if one grabs her, she's not going to be able to wiggle her way free. In Disney's version, Ursula's lair is inside the bones of a giant sea serpent thingy, whereas in the book she has like a little house, which would be charming, except it's made of the bones of men who had shipwrecked. Also in Anderson's story, the witch has no real connection to the kingdom or the throne, nor does she have any plans to take over the whole ocean. 
selling little spells and enchantments are literally just her her business. It's not like some grand master plan to become queen of the tides. She just sells spells and enchantments for a price. She's an entrepreneur in a really gross way. Um, who knows, man? It's gross. Um, let's see. I lost my place. Ah, here we go. Ursula, on the other hand, needs Ariel in order to fulfill her plan to take over Triton's throne. In the book, the witch tells the princess that her plan is very stupid and she shouldn't go through with it. So she's even, I mean, this is not great salesmanship for a person whose business is selling spells. She's telling the little mermaid, look, you're an idiot. You don't want to do this. Go back home. It'll be painful and it probably won't work. She tells the mermaid that she'll give her legs and walk. Oh, and while she would have legs and use them very gracefully, each step will feel as though she's stepping on knives and blood must flow. But if she's willing to bear it, then the witch will help the mermaid. When the princess says she's willing, the witch asks her to think again, reconsider. She can never be a mermaid again once she becomes a human. She can never return. And if she doesn't win the love of the prince, the first morning after he marries someone else, she will die of a broken heart and become seafoam. It's kind of weird, like, on a technical level. If she's no longer a mermaid and can never be a mermaid, then how come when she dies, she goes back to being foam? Wouldn't she, as a non-mermaid, just have a dead body? I don't know. It's a fairy tale. I need to stop overanalyzing, I guess. There's a much longer and more reasonable time limit than Ariel gets. The mermaid basically has until the prince marries someone else, which gives her time to really get to know him, but movie's got a movie. They've got to fit this thing into just a few minutes, you know, like an hour and a half. So they don't have time for her to spend years with the prince. But on the other hand, if Ariel fails, she just becomes Ursula's property, whereas this one dies instantly if she fails. I don't know about you, but the stipulation of getting the immortal souls and stuff, the main thing she's after, is just to have a man love you as his wife and make you his wife. Maybe pick somebody besides the prince. Pick somebody who is more likely to accept you for who you are instead of somebody who is, you know, pretty much required to marry other royalty. Because if you can't talk, you can't tell him you're suitable for the throne. I don't know. I would have picked somebody who had fewer options and was therefore more likely to choose me. If I, if my whole soul and life were in the balance, pick a battle you're going to win, sis. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, she has a lot more time than Ariel does, but her stakes are a little higher. And, of course, she's going to be in pain the entire time. So she's still going to want to hurry things up, right? She only has to get... Ariel only has to get a kiss, not marriage. So while she only has three days, her goal is not quite as high. She doesn't have to get all the way to the marriage step. On the other hand, three days even for a kiss is pretty fast. I don't know. She's really got to move it, I guess. But in Ariel's case, she doesn't automatically die because she becomes Ursula's property. Ursula's not going to let Ariel die because she's, again, got this whole chessboard set out in Ariel's one of her pawns. Whereas the books, which doesn't have any designs on the throne, so she's not as worried about what happens to the princess afterwards. She's worried enough that she tries a couple times to persuade the mermaid not to do what she's going to do, 
But just like Ariel, we see her suffering from the fact that she's friggin' 15 and gonna make a bad choice. So she, she of course, does it. Both mermaids give up their voice. Ariel literally has her voice summoned from her in this glowy, spooky ball, kind of like the souls in Harry Potter. Um, in the book, though, a water-clear potion is made to give the mermaid the legs she wants, and then her tongue is cut out. Just sliced right out there. I think technically you would still have your voice, though. I don't know. It just never says that she's able to talk. It says that she's unable to sing, and it seems like if your tongue was cut out, but you still had your voice, you'd be able to sing, but it would just have to be on like an ah or an oh, you know, like you couldn't do anything that requires lips or indeed a tongue, but you could still make sound, and it says that she can't even sing, so maybe cutting out her tongue was symbolic. We are dealing with a magical witch here. Anyway, in Disney's version, the spell automatically makes Ariel human and Sebastian and Flounder have to drag her up to the surface. In the book, she has the option to swim to the surface and then take the potion, which I think works out a little bit better for her. Because Ariel's story was almost over right there. Like she can't swim. She's never had to do it before. So I don't know. I live in South Carolina where we have some crabs here and I just can't picture any of them having the fortitude to pull me <laughs> like yards and yards up to the water surface. Here they're, they're just wee little. They're like the size of my hand. Now Ariel seems to live somewhere in the Caribbean so you know maybe the crabs are bigger there but it's still pretty impressive that Flounder and Sebastian pull her to the surface. But now we know that Flounder has super strength, right? So really, he could have done it by himself. He didn't need poor old Sebastian. Uh, but yeah, the tongue-cutting-out thing is a little more um, violent, but it works, I guess. Anyway, Anderson's mermaid at least has the foresight to not drink the potion that'll make it so that she can't swim or breathe underwater until she's already to the surface. She takes a drink of the clear potion, and it felt as though a double-edged sword split her in two from the end of her tail up to her waist. She fainted from the pain, but when she recovered, her prince was there, looking down on her. The prince helped her to her feet, and every step was painful as if she were walking on knives and needles. The prince took her in, since she wasn't even capable of telling him about herself. In Disney's version... We find Prince Eric walking down the beach, unable to get Ariel's song out of his head. Like many a man before him, he has been hypnotized by a mermaid song. He has looked everywhere for the girl who saved his life. A few steps away are Ariel and an exhausted Flounder and Sebastian. Again, Flounder has no right to be tired here, because teeny little Ariel cannot weigh as much as that big statue that he somehow mysteriously hauled into the grotto while moving the giant stone aside so he could bring it in. So, it seems weird. I need a Flounder movie. Like, something strange is going on with this fish. Ariel experiments with her new legs while Sebastian laments the current situation. He tries to convince Ariel to renounce her deal with Ursula, but she isn't up for it. She dresses herself in a sail that had washed ashore when Eric's dog Max smells his new friend and is off like a rocket to see her with Eric in pursuit. 
Max bounces around Ariel, very excited to see her, and for a second, Eric thinks he's found his savior, until he realizes that Ariel can't speak, and therefore can't sing. She couldn't be the one he's looking for. He's a bit downcast, but he's still a good guy, so he takes her in, in his palace. Not a bad place for her to land. Here we see Ariel meet Grim and Eric for lunch. She appears in a puffy pink dress, and even the puffy caps of the sleeves look like Snow White sleeves, but the color of the dress was inspired by Aurora. Because Ariel was the first princess in three decades, her human clothes are made as a tribute to all of the princesses that came before her. And there's a hair in my teacup. Grimsby sees a chance to fix Eric up and encourages the two to spend time together. I'm looking here, even the shape of her dress is reminiscent of Cinderella's gown. So we see a lot of Snow White, Cinderella, and Aurora in Ariel's clothing choices. And Eric is clearly charmed by her. Anderson's mermaid isn't making as much progress. That, that first day of running right into him was a great first day, but things aren't moving along quite so quickly for her after that. But she also has more time, so, you know, should be okay. The prince has a massive feast where beautiful slave girls sing and dance for him. The prince loved the singing, which hits the mermaid hard since she was an even better singer than these girls were before her curse. She took to the dance floor and captured everyone's attention. She danced and danced even though every step caused her agony. The prince is so fond of her that he allows her to sleep at his door and has a page's uniform made for her so that she can come with him on all of his horseback rides and mountain hikes and other activities. This is a point in time when dressing in men's clothing would have been much, much more shocking, and it's clear from his behavior that he sees her more as a pet or a friend than even as a girl, let alone a girl to have romantic interest in. She follows him everywhere, and she slowly begins to love the prince, and he loved her, but more as a little child or a pet. He tells her that she reminds him of the young, beautiful maiden who found him after he shipwrecked and saved his life. He said that she belonged to a temple and they could never be together. Despite how sad he seemed about this, the mermaid was just happy to knock one more woman out of the running. A little less competition for her, I guess. Woohoo! Not very compassionate, but all right. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in today. And if you want to hear what, more about what happens to both mermaids, please tune in for our next episode of Southern Pride Storytime. Have a good day.